Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you, and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. Hello, it's both of us this morning. These last months of online church have taught us a thing or two, like always record in landscape. Always ensure you've hit record before you deliver a full talk to a phone, a lesson I learnt last week. And when appearing on camera together, work out what you're going to do with your face when the other one's speaking. There's the weird uncomfortable side gaze and the bored stare into the distance, both magnified a thousand times when you're recording on an iPhone. But don't worry, we've learnt our lesson and we will be employing iMovie's crop function throughout this. We're pros now. We just felt that what we have to say today is too important for us not to say it together. As we have often said at Bread, we see church as having two primary functions. Church is a hospital, somewhere where we get fixed up, and church is a gas station, somewhere where we get filled up. In the hospital, Jesus is, of course, the great physician. He it is by his Holy Spirit who repairs our wounds, changes our hearts, strengthens our body, mind and soul. And he takes what was once in us a marred image of himself and he redeems it and he restores it so that we might be the Holy Spirit-filled people of God we were created to be. And in the gas station, Jesus empowers us. He sends us out. By his Spirit, he gives us calling and vision and purpose to bring his kingdom of justice and mercy and peace to a world in desperate need. And his manifesto becomes our manifesto. The Spirit of the Lord is on us. Because he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent us to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year, the age, the eon of the Lord's favour. Now, I know that what is going on in our country right now, for many of us, we are feeling filled up. We have the fire of God burning in us, and we are exercised. We are ready to go. We're protesting, we're educating, donating, we are praying, we are petitioning, we are dialoguing, we are voting, we are filled up. And for others of us, we also feel like that. We just need to know what we're supposed to be doing. Now, this desire to usher in the kingdom of God amongst people, this refusal to sit idly by, it is a powerful thing to behold, isn't it? And it's been a source of great encouragement to us to see so many of our congregation involved. Ours is, of course, a predominantly white church. We don't want it to stay like that. But for too long, the white church 
and white churches across this country like ours have been painfully, sinfully silent on issues of racism and racial justice. There is a hugely long way for us to go, but as every good Googler of inspirational quote memes in terrible fonts knows, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. We as a church must commit ourselves not just to taking the first few steps, but actually carrying on the whole journey to its completion. And let's be clear, it'll take at the very least all of our lifetimes. A hashtag here and a black square posted there. It's not nothing, but it is nowhere near enough. Hold us to this. Hold yourselves to it too. This is our Christian life. And we as a church will get on to all that we can do, all that we need to do and how best to do it. But for today, what we actually want to return to as a church is the hospital. Not, and please hear us on this, to dampen any enthusiasm, to disempower the work or take our minds off the action. In fact, to do the exact opposite. We want to return to the hospital in order to give our actions the power that they need so that they are not lost, so that they don't fizzle out, and that they are empowered to accomplish real change. Because what we believe must be the work that precedes all other work is the work of repentance. We're in need of some open heart surgery. And this is gonna be the hardest thing for us to hear. But without it, we're simply scratching at the surface. Racism is sin, and sin is a spiritual issue, an issue of the heart. As Jesus says, it's not from without, but from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. So our hearts need to be changed. And repentance is the starting point for change, and it's how we can know ourselves as restored to God. And it's how we can have any real hope that we might be restored to our African-American brothers and sisters. So what is it that we actually need to repent of? One of the fundamental principles of the American ideology is individualism. It has been core to this country's identity really since the beginning of the 19th century. In its most noble expressions, it emphasizes the importance and rights and values of every individual. All people are created equal and are given the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, who can't get behind that? But when we've been brought up in a culture that puts such a focus on the individual, it can be difficult to see the world through any other lens. In fact, because this focus is so ingrained, it might actually appear that looking at the world through any other lens is actually the wrong thing to do. But this would be a mistake, particularly when it comes to the Bible, because the Bible is not written from an individualistic perspective at all. For the Jewish mindset of Moses and Paul and all the other biblical writers, they would have had no idea what we mean by individualism or the individual. For the biblical writers, you are, to a large part, who you are in relation to your family and culture and ancestors and history. Now, of course, the Gospel has some wonderful things to say about the value and freedom of the individual. And of course, our faith, the Christian faith, is deeply personal and we must never lose that and we don't want to take away from it. But fundamentally, this is a book not about individuals, it's a book about a family and a culture and a shared history. So in universal theological terms, 
the only time in the whole of the creation account when God creates and then doesn't say it is good is after he's created Adam. In fact, he says it is not good because Adam is alone. Then having created Eve, his co-equal companion, he says and declares that it's not just good, but creation is very good, excellent in, any way, in every way. Because for the first time, we now have community. This is what creation is about. Now, the story of the patriarchs in Genesis, which we've been looking at, as we have said, is a rescue plan for the world. And part of that rescue is to recreate community. To be in community with one another and with God, as it was always intended. So throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we have this deep understanding and particular experience of a people's community. And people are not just responsible for themselves, but also for their families. Not just responsible for their families, but also for their cultures and their races. And so the Bible actually says that any member of a culture can bring guilt on the whole, just as any member of a culture can bring credit to the whole. So, just as we begin, and as we've been saying, we probably need to remove some of our individualistic glasses and admit that we might not have been reading the Bible entirely correctly all this time. So this morning we're skipping ahead from Genesis today to look at one episode in the life of Daniel in particular. So God has chosen Abraham and his descendants to be his people, to be his community and a blessing to the world. This goes well and badly in kind of equal measure. And then they find themselves in Egypt, enslaved, Moses leads them out, and they come to the promised land. And then to start with, they are uh, led by Joshua, and then the judges, and then kings, which kind of get progressively worse. And for Israel, during this time, things are kind of bad and good in equal measure, until finally it really does get very bad, and the Babylonians invade, they sack Jerusalem, and they take the Jewish people out into exile. This is as bad as it gets for them. And this is where we meet Daniel. Now, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, has taken the cream of the crop of Jewish society, and he has taken these noble young men to serve in his court, and Daniel is one of them. And after the events uh, with which we are most familiar, Daniel in the lion's den, the non-burning in the fiery pit of Shadrach, Meshach, and under the bed we go, Daniel becomes a dream interpreter, and he is there serving at the court of various Babylonian kings. So it's this that is the context that we meet Daniel, and in chapter 9, read here, uh, we are going to hear about a particular prayer of his. Hey church, today's reading is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. In the first year of Darius son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked 
and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to tell the people of the land, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. This next reading is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 17 through 19. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel is repenting and confessing sin. He's casting himself on the mercy of God. But he's doing so not for his own sake, but for the sake of all of his people, including his ancestors. Daniel is not explicitly guilty of any of the things that he's repenting for. At the time that Jerusalem fell, he'd have been a little older than a teenager. Indeed, the text represents him throughout as being blameless and righteous and as God-fearing as a person could be. But that doesn't stop him repenting because he knows it's impossible to separate himself from his people, from his culture and from his history. This is such an alien concept to white culture in America. We say what he's doing, he doesn't need to do. He doesn't need to repent, he did nothing wrong. We say, I don't need to repent, I'm not a racist, I didn't enslave anyone, that's all in the past, let's move on. I'm not a violent cop, I don't vote for those guys, I don't agree with their policies. I have a lot of black friends, this is not on me. But actually, yes, it is, because as hard as it is for us to get our individualistic minds around and whether we like it or not, we are all the product of our cultures. For all of us, if we're white people in America, we don't really see this because we're in the majority. We don't see our culture because it's everywhere. But believe me, as someone who has spent extended periods of time in other cultures, you really see how important your culture is to you when you're in the minority. And it draws you to others from your culture like a powerful magnet. Let's be other together. But here, as white people in white-dominated America, it's hard to not be myopic. But just because we can't see our culture doesn't stop us being part of it. So let us now try to see our culture a little bit more clearly. Now, certainly you don't need any more stats being flung at you this week. 
And of course, we must be wary of thinking that we can necessarily answer complex questions with simple solutions. But the plain fact of the matter is this. In the great United States of America, and I mean that, it is a great place to live. It's pretty much the richest, most affluent nation on earth, not just now, but throughout the whole of history. But in this country, right now, being born into an African-American family is a disadvantage on almost every single possible metric. Wealth, income, likelihood of unemployment, access to healthcare, access to education, likelihood of arrest, likelihood of incarceration across the board. Now, of course, there are a multitude of reasons behind these facts, and those are debated, as I'm sure you're aware, until the cows come home. But let us not let the debate distract us from the actual point. You're better off in this country if you're not black. This just cannot be right. It just can't. We have created, and we are willingly participators in, a country that discriminates and makes life harder simply because of the colour of the skin you're born with. Slavery may have been abolished. Emancipation may have been enacted. Martin Luther King Jr. may have won civil rights, but there are atrocities in the very foundations of this country that have not been made right. We and our kings, verse 8, we and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. We're more than happy, aren't we, to share in the success of our culture, and rightly so. But in order to do that legitimately, we must also share in its shame. In a racist system, there are those who are directly responsible for perpetrating evil, there are those who are aware of what's going on and do nothing to stop it. There are those who hear rumours of it happening, don't know much about it, but choose not to investigate what's actually going on. The system continues to be racist because each group plays its part in its continuing function. But the racism of the system actually hides itself in plain view as the system itself continues to tell us that we're all equal and free and just living our lives trying to get along. But as white people living our lives trying to get along, we actually stand on the shoulders of our white ancestors who stand on the shoulders of their ancestors, and so on and so on. None of them were slaves. None of them were restricted in where they could go to school, where they could live or what jobs they could do because of the colour of their skin. We are the beneficiaries. African-Americans are the casualties. So we're all really complicit in the continued oppressive function of this system. And it's time for all of us to stop playing our part. This is what repentance actually means. The Greek word metanoia, it's not just about saying sorry. This is about not doing it anymore. When we first moved to this country, probably four years ago now, almost four years ago, uh, I would have put myself probably in the third rung of that system. I knew something about uh, the racial histories of the past of this country, I knew something about the oppression, I knew uh, about Rodney King and various other things that had happened in more recent history, but I didn't think that much about it and I probably didn't think it was my problem. 
And then having been here and particularly off the back of the election and the Charlottesville uh, protests and what went on there, suddenly with all these racial tensions brought to the fore, I thought, oh my goodness, this is a culture that I don't know enough about and I need to know more about. And I read and I watched films and heard things and actually became a lot more educated. But in becoming more educated, what really happened was I felt completely impotent. I thought, oh my goodness, how on earth could this problem be addressed and who am I to address it? We're just some white people from England who have come over to start a church and we've got to get the church off the ground and have we got any money to do anything and all those sorts of things, familiar excuses, I'm sure, to many of us. But so now I have to say sorry and I must say sorry and I want to say sorry. This is really what I've been repenting of this week. It's not really a lack of education. I actually think it's probably a bit worse. It's a lack of action. And so to my African-American brothers and sisters, I say, sorry. Would you have mercy on me? And to my God, I say, Father, forgive me. When our culture fails people, we share in their guilt. When our culture oppresses people with education systems and city planning systems and judicial systems, we oppress people. But let me say this, that from a Christian perspective, this is not about self-flagellation. This is not about self-hatred or shaming ourselves, shaming our culture, hating our culture. Engaging in any form of that hatred or shame is actually antithetical to the Christian gospel and has no help to us whatsoever. The only thing that we're supposed to hate as Christians is sin and cauliflower, of course, because cauliflower emanates from the nostrils of the devil. It is pure evil. Rather, this isn't about self-hatred. This is about taking responsibility for who we are. And it's about taking responsibility for where we've come from so that we might be made new and so that our culture might be made new. Most importantly, it's knowing that because of Jesus, even before repentance, there is grace. Even during repentance, there is grace. And most significantly, after repentance, there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though our sins are like scarlet, he will make us as white as snow. This is what we need to repent of. So how do we do it? We do it seriously, we do it selflessly, and we do it to one another. Verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel pleads the language of desperation. He fasts the action of sincerity and he wears sackcloth and ashes, the symbol of contrition. Daniel takes repentance very seriously and so must we. None of us need to do any of these things in order to repent. And again, repentance is not about self-humiliation. Our forgiveness is guaranteed 
we do not need and nor can we pay for our own sins. But let us not treat sin lightly. Taking our sins seriously is part of actually taking ourselves seriously. And when we repent in deep sincerity, what we are doing is an exhaustive inventory of our hearts. If you consider sin as like a barrier separating us from the face of God, stopping the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as well, of course, as one that separates us off from one another, the more seriously we treat our sin, the more damage we do to that barrier. And we do it selflessly. What Daniel says is this, we do not make requests of you, God, because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. This isn't really about us. Let's not see it as another great opportunity to bring the focus onto us. It's about him. It's about being made new by him and allowing him to be our God once more. Let's do that. Let us allow him to be our redeemer, the one whose forgiveness covers all our sin and changes every heart. We ask him to forgive us and we ask him to change us because he is merciful to do so. He has shown it to us. It is what he desires more than anything in the whole world. It is really his primary function for us. We just need to let him do it. And we do it to one another. Daniel's repentance, the sins of his ancestors, are really only against God. Ours are not. Of course, all sin is against God, but ours are also against our black brothers and sisters too. And we need to ask for them to forgive us. If you look at those marriages or relationships that have kind of lasted through the years, who have stood the test of time, where they don't just sort of tolerate each other or they don't just uh, put up with one another, but they actually love each other more than they've ever done before, and you can see it in the way they act, they will all say they have learned just how important repentance is. Now, obviously, Hannah and I never need to repent to one another. Not true of course but in the 14 years that we've been married what we have come to see and I would say what I've come to see more than anything over this period is just how vital repentance is is actually facing up to the things that we've done actually allowing the person to tell us how they have been hurt actually taking responsibility for the actions that we do that cause pain and repenting saying sorry and resolving to move away from that. Now, all repentance comes at a cost. As we often say, I doubt anyone woke up this morning thinking, oh, I hope there's an opportunity for some humility. I really do hope we get a chance to just have a look at just quite how broken and horrible we can be and to say sorry about it. But the cost of not doing it is so much greater. It's the cost of remaining as we are shadow versions of ourselves, fragmented people continuing to live parts of our lives in the darkness, in pain and causing more pain to other people. Let us instead be people of courage. Let us be people who know that repentance is part of a healthy relationship. Let us be kingdom people. The church, 
the gas station, the hospital, the family, the army, is by any definition that you can find in the New Testament unequivocally diverse. Many parts, many voices, all the colours of humanity. The other sorry that I want to be sure that we have said this morning is that we haven't fought harder to make bread a place where people of colour don't have to feel like the outsiders in a majority white community. Let us commit as a community at this point to listening to the voices of others, to celebrating the cultures of others, to being comfortable with the discomfort of making these changes. As much as Ed, Alice and I, three faces and voices that you're going to hear most most often at the minute, are committing to use our whiteness to speak to the whiteness in our community about what needs to change, we very much want to add other voices to that mix. Please join with us in the very specific prayer that God would show us the right partners and and leaders and people who we can get partnerships with who are people of colour so that we can hear these voices too. We believe that what we're seeing is breaking point, but a breaking point not with chaos, but with hope on the other side. A time of stillness caused by the pandemic has allowed us to all see with crystal clear clarity that what has been can be no more. We've prayed and we've fasted this week and as well as feeling all of us, I know with a lot of you called to repentance, we're also feeling full of hope not just as the world might cling to hope at the minute because people power and peaceful protests might actually mean we see policy change, definitely hope for that, but also the hope that we have in the one who has all the power, the power to do anything in whom all things are possible, who has been and is working to make all things new, all these things new, who isn't surprised, overwhelmed or intimidated, by anything that's happening right now. The one who is our hope. So let's start as we need to go on and let's begin with repentance. In a moment, Jacqueline is gonna lead us in a song of worship. And what I would do during this time is allow God to search your heart. If you know you need to repent of something, you know. We don't need to dig around in it. But now, in this moment, This is about being right with God once more. So, confess your sins to him, give them to him, and don't pick them up again. He it is who is, as we say often, the garbage man of the world. He takes our stinking garbage, he burns it up forever, and we never see it again. And having done that, let us open ourselves again to the power of the Spirit. Come Lord Jesus, we say, come Holy Spirit and fill us from our head to our feet. He it is who is the spirit of peace, he is the spirit of hope, he is the spirit of love, and he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, he fills us with his presence, we are fragile, weak things, aren't we? But he is strong, and he makes us strong in his strength. So come Holy Spirit. So in a minute after Jacqueline sang this song, we'll be back just to formally close the service, And there will be prayer ministry happening on Zoom straight away after that as well. Stick around for that. God bless you.